Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on today, Cecil? Not much, Richie. What's going on with you? Well, I finally jumped into the fray after hearing you and a bunch of other people talk about fitness trackers and activity trackers, and I finally got a Fitbit. Oh, yeah? Which one did you get? I got the Fitbit Blaze. It's the one that looks like an Apple Watch, but it's not an Apple Watch at all. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So what made you decide to get the Blaze versus the Charge HR? Well, the Charge HR is your normal-looking Fitbit, right? And it does the, the heart tracking and all that. So that my wife got that one. But I decided to you know, kind of take a step up a little bit from that. And I know the, the Blaze can connect to my phone and do the GPS tracking when I do my runs. So I said, why not? Let's just go ahead and, uh, and, and take a look at that one. You know what's good? You know, you're doing it. Your wife's getting into it. You know, eventually what will happen is that your kids will get into it too and, you know, your, your habits will just kind of rub off on them and, you know, the whole family is going to be doing, working out and trying to be healthy. Yeah, we're seeing that already, which is uh, kind of cool. So we're, we're hoping that uh, this isn't just a one-time thing and then we'll go right back to our old heating habits and all the other stuff. But uh, I'm hoping that this is going to be more of a lifestyle change. So here we go. Here's hoping it, it sticks. So speaking about technology... I recently got a, a Galaxy Gear VR. And uh, so that's, that's been pretty interesting, I got to say. The way that it works is that you take your phone and you put your phone into the headset, which is very not like a lot of other VR headsets that are out there. So your phone actually powers the device. Like it doesn't have an extra battery or extra headphone jack or anything. Everything runs off of your phone. What has been pretty interesting is for me personally to see my son use it. So we have a stargazing app that he likes to play with. And there's also a little jungle app that he likes to play with. You know, just the look in his face as he's turning around and he's, he's, you see him try to walk and he's trying to move around with the headset on. It's, 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 it's absolutely hilarious to me. <laughs> What's funny too is that it reminds me when I was a kid, I used to play with Hot Wheels and cardboard boxes, right? And now my son is playing with VR headsets. It just shows like, <laughs> how completely different we are just in terms of technology. Yeah, it's a brave new world out there, man. Yeah, totally, totally different, man. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Mr. Amir Rajan. Amir is a pretty decent dev and he's constantly trying to improve in his craft. He's a jack of all trades, being comfortable with a number of platforms and languages. Last but certainly not least, Amir is the creator of A Darkroom iOS. This RPG conquered the world and took the number one spot in the App Store and placed in the top 10 paid apps across 70 countries. It's been downloaded over 2.5 million times and is a staple game in the App Store with over 25,000 five-star reviews. Wow, that's no joke, That's man. serious, man. That's hardcore. This episode is recorded on March 22nd, 2016, and now our conversation with Amir Rajan. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So we got a really special guest on the show today. Amir, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners really quick? Man, I can finally say it. I, uh, I'm a game developer, right? I can actually say I'm a full-time 
full-fledged game developer. And um, I actually developed a, a iOS game called A Dark Room. And the interesting thing is a minimalist text-based RPG that went viral in the App Store and became the number one app for about 18, 19 days. I guess that's kind of like my claim to fame. I took a sabbatical about three years ago to work on the game and uh, hit the number one spot in about five, six months. And that's all she wrote after that. I guess I started on all my applications and stuff and on my resumes and everything I could say game developer. <laughs> So I guess that's that's me in a nutshell. Um, I do a lot of open source work too. Multiple stacks, .NET, Ruby, F Sharp. Got three primary open source projects that are on e each one of those platforms. And then I do my game development. So would you say game development is like your, in terms of development anyway, is that your your main passion? Yeah. Uh, so passion, you know, the talks of passion, the word passion is always, uh, always brings up it's a very deliberate term, right? Uh, at least I see it that way. And that's why I kind of paused when I was thinking about it. But uh, yeah, I would say that at least for now, uh, game development is definitely something that, you know, wakes me up in the morning and, and gets me going. Uh, so yeah, I would say it's my passion. So how did you get started in building game? You know, I don't know if you, you guys can uh, empathize with this, but, you know, when I was a kid, the way I built stuff or got into programming was, oh, I'm going to build a video game. And, uh, you know, it was one of those, like, creative outlets that kind of was like, oh, yeah, this is this is going to be a cool way to, you know, do something uh, with some of my creativity that I had. So I guess, you know, I'd always played games. I, I had an Atari when I was growing up and then got the Nintendo and Super Nintendo. So I went through all the all the consoles that you would, that you would get as a child. So um, it's always, I guess, gaming has always been a part of who I was, who I am. Once I saw the opportunity, especially with, the, with taking some time off, uh, I was like, you know what? I want to learn iOS development. I want to learn mobile development. I don't want to write a business app, uh, so I'm going to build a game. And uh, that's what I ended up doing. So actually, A Dark Room was, um, it, it was actually a web-based game that a guy from uh, Canada built. It, his name was Michael Townsend. And um, basically, I you know contacted him and said, hey, I want to try to port this over to iOS, see what I can do with it. And then I started doing that, and I re-envisioned the game as a mobile, on a mobile media. And, you know, that was it. And it was just just lots of fun to to just work on something that wasn't a web application that stored stuff into a database that retrieved data from a database that validated the data that was retrieved and so on and so forth. Right. Right. Like doing some of those very typical, uh, what do you call it, forms over data type type applications. Right. Yeah. And and uh, there's some there's some interesting things that, you know, you can do in those applications. But in the essence, that's kind of the extent of uh, of some of that work. And again, there's variations to it. But uh, I was happy to just be able to try something different. So for me growing up, my favorite game probably of all time has to be Super Mario Brothers 3 for me. Yes, oh, that's yeah. a great game. Love Super Mario Brothers 3. I love all the Mario Brothers games, but Super Mario Brothers for me is just, it, it really holds a spot for me. So what would you say would be one of your favorite games that you used to play? All right, so in in the recent, I guess the recent game era, Dark Souls by far is one of my one of my favorite games. Previous generation, I would say Final Fantasy Tactics on the on the PS one, mm. PS uh, PS two. I don't know. I don't know what would be my favorite. Um, I guess I guess Final Fantasy ten would be my favorite on PlayStation two. And then uh, back to Super uh, SNES, SNES uh, uh, Illusion of Gaia. So that was like a really, 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 really fun. Um, it's from the Soul Blazer ser series. Yeah. So if you ever, if you can ever find one of those old uh, SNES or get, or if you have any SNES ROMs, definitely try Illusion of Gaia. Uh, Nintendo. Uh, I was, I was pretty young when Nintendo came out. So I would say Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Was, I remember that game. Was my. Nice. I love that game. It was a great game. <laughs> So that would be my favorite game from from uh, Super Nintendo. I mean the SNES days, and then Atari. Uh, definitely Dig Dug. That was that was my big game. See, I always thought that Ducktales was better than Chippendales. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think I think I just liked Chippendale because I watched the cartoons, right? So yeah. 
Right. Um, it, it was just funny watching those two gumshoes do their thing. I, I don't know. You get you get Scrooge McDuck on his, on bouncing on a pole. I mean, there's yeah, there's yeah. nothing better than that, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, he's that, got that's, the, he's that's got the little cane and he uses it like a pogo stick. Yeah, I, I remember that. That's right. Um, yep. <laughs> but you get zipper. Right. I don't know. You get, you get the fly, and you know he starts beating yeah. people up for you. I don't know. It's tough. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've always been a big Zelda fan, even since the first Zelda came out. Just played the heck out of that. Yes. And yeah. you know, I've I recently played it. I think about a year ago. Recently played Zelda two again. I'm uh, almost at the end of Zelda: A Link to the Past. Yeah. Uh, just just finished. Um, uh, oh, God, what's the the best one? Uh, oh. Well, there's Link to the Past. There's Ocarina of Time. Ocarina of Time. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I just completely blanked on that one. But I just finished that one again. You know, I've kind of you know, given my kids the Zelda blog too. So they, they've gone back and started playing all that stuff. And, uh, you know, those are different games, right? I mean, especially like the first one, they didn't tell you what to do. You just like, you know, go take this. You're going to need it. And then all of a sudden, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> it was difficult. They were hard games. It was great. Uh, have you ever watched any speedruns? If you, if you type in Zelda yes. Link to the Past speedrun, it's... It's ridiculous. Yeah, I've, I've seen some of those. It's crazy how quickly they go through those games. Well, not, but not only that, but they glitch it through. Yeah, and there's and then there's like different variations. Oh, this is a glitchless speed run, any percent. This one is, you know, with glitches, any percent or 100% speed run. So you get all these like different variations and sections of, you know, qualifications of what constitutes a speed run or what, not, what doesn't. Yeah, but but it, it it's an interesting question for developers then. It's, you know, there's bugs in those games, right? I mean, there's there's issues in those old games. So when they go and have to re- redo them for the new generation, and in this case, it would be for the 3DS, they had to decide do whether to them, fix, right. Yeah, do we fix these bugs or not? Because th- that's actually part of the experience that people had and people are expecting. Yeah, it's and it's so weird. Uh, like, have you seen some of the exploits in Zelda Ocarina of Time? They are insane. They are they are so they are so ridiculous. There's like this exploit where after you beat the boss in the Deku tree, you do uh, some frame perfect variation, and then you get automatically teleported into into the last boss of Ocarina of Time. It's and they explain how they do it, and uh, you know all the intricacies of, oh yeah, we have this. We're taking advantage of this floating point error that happens at this point, and uh, it tries to find a cutscene but can't, so then it skips to the end. <laughs> and it's like this is ridiculous. How do you figure this stuff out? Anytime you see, you know, one of those new games get ported over, you you have to really think about: Do we keep the stuff in? Do we keep the behavior? Do we keep the bugs? Just to make the game feel true. Yeah, I, I read um, an article that kind of catalogs them porting it over to the 3DS, and the developers actually had arguments about which <laughs> bugs they should fix and which bugs they they should really keep keep in there. Which is really curious, right? I mean, because these. A lot of these people probably didn't even work on the original game, right? They're just right. they're taking the source code and they're, and they're moving it over. And they did the whole 3D effects and they upgraded the visuals and they did all that stuff. Oh, that's fine. But this bug here, we can't touch that. <laughs> no, we can't. We can't remove this. It's got to be there. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna argue that you know the next triage. No, you don't understand that bug. It has to go there, man. It has <laughs> to be there. You don't. You don't know. Well, uh, the the interesting thing is that it's kind of as corollaries to what we do, you know, on our day to day. It's like, oh, we're gonna rewrite this portion of the application, and then we look at the old version of this app and we try to use, you know, some user experience, and then we're like, this is terrible. Why would you ever do it this way? We're gonna change it, and then the product owner comes back and say, no, no, we got to keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, they like it. It's like, but why would anyone do this for real? They don't know. They just do. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like it, it affects the numbers. We tried changing it the other way and it affected the numbers, so we have to revert it back. <laughs> you get that, right? It's, these are horror yeah, stories. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, I've I've been there. I've led projects that are, are exactly that way. It's like, but this way is so much better for you guys. And they're like, nope, we want the old spreadsheet grid. All right, uh, you get it. Good God. Okay. But so I want to go back to something that you'd said earlier. Playing some of these old games, you don't. The manual is a lot thinner, right? Uh, actually, mm-hmm. I don't even think we get manuals these days anymore. We don't get manuals yeah. now. We don't but, get manuals. But the games were a lot more challenging. And for me, mm-hmm. I find like the games before had a lot more story, and they lasted a lot longer, and they're more nostalgic for me. You know, a lot of games today, at least a lot of the games that I've been playing, they're short. The, the replayability of them is very low, and so it kind of just shows how some of these old games, like they really just attach to you, just. I mean, from when you're a kid and, you know, there's probably something to be said about that. But also, too, like, the story is so much richer, right? So so as you're building games, like, do you really think about that a lot? Like, how how, how long should this game last? And how rich do I want to make this story? Yeah. Um, I, so I think, uh, and the the interesting thing is that for for where I am uh, with, with a darkroom and these mobile games that I'm building, they're really lo-fi. So being a sole developer, I can't. I can't do 3D. I can't use, you know, Unity 3D or use um, uh, Metal or any any one of these rich frameworks primarily because I just creating something with with that kind of fidelity is just too much work. So so I have to look back and say, okay, well, my constraint is that I'm the only person, but it kind of helps me out because that's a constraint that I have to work with. So that's one thing that I've noticed with uh, new games that come out is that they don't have those kind of constraints. You have, you know, you have very few hardware constraints. You have large teams and you can do whatever you want. And then uh, what happens is that sometimes that stuff gets muddled, right? So you, you may have a really good narrative relative to one of the old games, but because you have so much of everything else, it get it gets muddied up with all the other things that you're trying to do. That's one of the interesting things about a lot of these old games that that exist is that they they had hardware constraints. There there's a book that I read that I read called um, um, Masters of Doom. It talks about some of the challenges they had with uh, replicating Super Mario Brothers three and the the side scrolling capabilities of Super Mario Brothers on on the Apple II and PC and how difficult that was. But uh, and to how to get it so smooth on on uh, some of these uh, old old pieces of hardware. And they just had to deal with these constraints and work with them. And then because those constraints were there, they had to figure out, well, how do we still engage the person? How do we create immersive experiences and things like that? So um, that's something that I think um, uh, we overlook these days is the, these concepts of, you know, we have limited aspects of X, Y, and Z, and we have to work within that to create something really good, as opposed to painting it over with, you know, a nice Vista or a nice 3D model that gets, you know, thrown in there. I've never built a game before, right? I've, I've never done game development or anything like that. What's your tool set look like? And what, you know, how did you, what's, what was your learning process in, in learning to build some of these things? I started really jumping into uh, game development after, you know, not being a kid, but really in my professional career was actually on Node Knockouts. So um, have you heard of Node Knockout? It's like a, yeah. it's basically, yeah. So I, I participated in Node Knockout about three or four times and every time uh, our team would end up building some kind of game and the killer feature for me was websockets you know this day and age i guess pretty much every every framework house there out there has some form of websocket but back then it was 
it was really interesting to say, hey, you know, I can Node.js makes it so easy for me to just communicate with the client, uh, you know, with with push without long polling or some kind of comment server or any any variation like that. So that's when I, I guess, uh, found found my love for game development again was through these Node Knockout um, uh, competitions, and we would make multiplayer games. Uh, one we made this risk based strategy game. Uh, we did a isomorphic like 2D platform. I mean, a 2D like tactics game. Uh, we made a fighting game. So we did quite a few like really, really int- different genre based games. So I started my game development with Node.js, React, and just using Canvas, HTML5 Canvas. And uh, there's actually a 2D, uh, 2D game engine called Pixie, Pixie.js that I use to kind of rad- rapidly prototype my games. So if I got an idea that I want to, you know, play around with, I'll actually say, okay, well, can I do this in jQuery? And just kind of get something working. Or um, do I need to bring in just a little bit of Canvas to, you know, really flesh out some of the game mechanics? And then when I start getting into mobile development, that's when I start looking at um, creating native native experiences. Primarily because of the, the performance issues with regards to just having, you know, web control. And trying to get that to render at 60 frames per second. So uh, what I use for my native development is uh, it's called, uh, it's a framework called RubyMotion. Again, this goes back to, well, when I first started uh, building a darkroom, um, Swift wasn't available, so I had the option of doing Objective-C in Xcode or uh, maybe PhoneGap, uh, which is Cordova, or doing you know something different. And uh, I knew of RubyMotion, and that's when I, that's when I picked up. I was I was pretty strong in Ruby during that time period, primarily because of uh, build automation for some of my .NET projects that I was doing. So we would do instead of using MS Build, I mean we would have MS Build and Solution projects, but when it, when it came down to like deploying to QA environments or uh, or doing you know .NET or MVC deployments, uh, we primarily used uh, Rake. It was a framework called Albacore to do these build automations, and that's kind of how I learned Ruby. So I was like, well, okay, Ruby Motion's there. Let me give it a shot. You know, I, obviously I was familiar with the syntax. I liked it a lot more than Objective C. Uh, Swift wasn't around, so I chose Ruby Motion at that point, and uh, you know, started working on it. Uh, it all compiles down to LLVM, so the the performance was spot on, and um, that's kind of that. I, I fell in love with that. So I basically used just a really lightweight editor, you know, Vim, just some Vim, Emacs, and Rake tasks, and Ruby Motion. And that's how I built uh, the mobile my mobile games, and to the, to this day I still I still build it that way. So there's a framework called a there's two frameworks that I'm uh, three frameworks that I'm using, uh, depending on depending on uh, what kind of game I'm building. There's one called Coco 2DX, which is uh, C++, and uh, then there's this uh, there's an enhancement that the Ruby Motion guys built on top of it called Motion Game that basically takes that that lets you do cross-platform game development in Ruby as opposed to C++. So that part's cool, and that's for like my really high-end games. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of sh- spiel on the high-end stuff. There's also Scene Kit, which I uh, Scene uh, Sprite Kit, sorry, which I'm using for uh, one of my other like 2D platformer games. And um, uh, that's that's uh, just straight uh, iOS. And now I'm looking at LibGDX to potentially do some some other variation of cross-platform. But that's that one's in Java. But now that Ruby Motion supports Android. Um, I'm looking at maybe using that as a as a bridge to doing potentially cross-platform stuff for both um, iOS and Android. So kind of looking at your profile a little bit, it looks like you've built some web applications, right? It looks like you have some experience doing web as well as game development. How different is the mindset, right, when you step in to build these different types of projects? So what I, what I found is that game development, I guess because I'm building it from, you know, from the product owner side all the way to creative, all the way to uh, programming, there's a lot of creative aspect to it. There are very few like patterns that I could reuse between the two worlds. 
the interesting thing is that you have the you know MVC model view, model view controller with a lot of the you know web applications that you build. Well, there's only a render loop in game development, and you know there's some there's some libraries out there that make it more event driven. So you get more of a thick client experience when you're doing game development with regards to uh, like the post back model that we had uh, with with websites. Uh, React actually made me a little. Um, that's one of the reasons why I kind of liked React was it had this concept of of a, of a game loop almost this this idea of a request animation frame that goes in and re-renders the DOM based on uh, based on some backend stuff. So there's commonalities that that I see, but generally speaking, um, they're they're really two different beasts. Uh, primarily because uh, I think games are a bit more creative. Uh, they have a bit more creative aspect to it. So it's not really centered around maybe architecture or um, or a common you know commoditizing or reusing specific controls. It's really scripted. Uh, in some places to like drive the storyline, so you might have some. Uh, there are there are parts of my game where it's it looks like an ugly hack, right? It's like I needed to do this one specific thing at this one specific point, and I'm doing it because it's part of the story, right? So then you've got this huge if belt if block, and you just throw your code in there, and it's like, all right, I've scripted it, done. <laughs> nice. I would say you're more accepting of those kind of uh, rough edges in in game development. Personally, I am. As opposed to you know more more architecturally sound development such as web development or you know business app development. So you mentioned before one of your games called a dark room. So could you tell the listeners a little bit of what the game is about? Why did you decide to make it? You know, tell us a little bit of history about it. All right. So um, a dark room is a minimalist text-based RPG. So you can kind of comp- uh, compare it to, um, it was actually uh, inspired by, uh, there's a couple of games it was inspired by. NetHack is a, is a game that it was expired, uh, inspired by. Have any of y'all, uh, yeah, uh, I've heard about that? NetHack before. Yeah. NetHack's old school. It's an old school roguelike. Um, and it's all terminal based. It's so fun. <laughs> and the sort, the source is actually online. It's, it's hundreds of thousands of lines of code. It's ridiculous how large that game is. Oh, is it? It's on GitHub? Um, uh, I think it's on Git. Uh, there's like a there's like a nethack.org or something that links to a Git repo. Um, I'm not sure if it's on GitHub. Oh, very But cool. um, but they do have a Git repo for and it's open source for you to for you to play around with. Um, and it's all C C plus plus. I think it's I think it's just C. I'm not a hundred percent sure though. Uh, but it was inspired by NetHack. There's another game called um, uh, it's inspired by NetHack. It's inspired by um, Cellarverse, which is a choose your own adventure game. That that is also available. Um, Anno, it's a building uh, building game, and then um, uh, one more one more game that it was it was inspired by that Candy Box. That's it, Candy Box. So it's a minimalist text based RPG, and you start off with just a bunch of progress bars that you tap to like gather wood, keep the fire going, and then uh, suddenly uh, suddenly you get this new NPC character that comes in. And uh, she's a builder, and she says, "Well, I can build things for you." And then you end up building up a village, and um, you you've got a supply chain going. And there's some really unique story elements that that come in there during that progression. And then it starts going into another point in the game where it becomes almost like a road roguelike where you're traversing a map. And all this is uh, basically user controls. So I didn't use any kind of game engine for this. This was UI kit, buttons, text boxes, labels. <laughs> Mm. Um, the map is, is just a big label. That's a ASCII map. Um, nice. the letter T is a forest. Uh, you're an at sign, uh, different landmarks are just different bold characters. And, um, the, the fight sequences are kind of like the old school where you tap the progress bar and it, and it sends your, just animates your player over as it hit, as it, as it hits the person. So kind of like a real old school RPG kind of, kind of variation. 
Nice. And, and, and the weird thing is that this thing made it to the number one spot in the app store. That's what, that's what confuses me. Or I guess it shows the power of what games can do. Uh, even if it's a lo-fi game, how, how it can capture an audience. But I wasn't, I was in shock when it, when it hit the number one spot, um, in the app store. And, um, you know, after I, I, I'm still, yeah, I'm still confused at how that even happened. Well, I think it's like a testament to show that, you know, good games don't have to be 3D and kill your battery. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it's good to have that validated. Uh, so, I mean, I still had to appreciate that the person was on a mobile device and there were some specific things that I had to take into consideration with regards to interest level and immersion and making sure that they continue playing. But I was really happy to see that, yeah, there are still people out there that enjoy these kind of experiences and see games as something more than, you know, just, just a time passer and they can actually get involved in the storyline and really enjoy it. So what do you think your next game that you're going to build will be? And I'm working on the Android Port of a Darkroom. So that's one of the irons in the fire that I have. And uh, a game that I'm currently working on is called A Noble Circle. And uh, have you ever read uh, Flatland by Edwin Abbott? No, I haven't, actually. Um, so it's, it's part of the Gutenberg, Gutenberg Project. So it's free for you to download and read. It's out of copyright. And it's a book. It's about, it's about like 85 pages, 90 pages. It's written by a mathematician about a 2D world. And it talks about this square who lives in this 2D world. And he tries to explain what it's like to be a two-dimensional being and to live in this two-dimensional place. So, um, you know, you can't actually jump over someone because it's two-dimensional. So you have to like kind of, you know, walk around them and like pointy edges are very, very bad for you. And they can, you know, really, really injure you if you actually walk into a pointy edge. So this game is is built on this. It's almost like a platform, a 2D platform where you're looking above on this 2D world and you're guiding this circle through this world. And I, uh, exp- I have a narrative that explains what the world is and why you're two dimensional and why you're trying to flee, you know, flee this region to another region. And the the book was interestingly a, a satire for the uh, for the Versailles era and a lot of the social quandaries, I guess, of, of that time period, you know, how women were treated, uh, how the caste system worked out, um, what kind of like ridiculous things they had with regards to societal culture and stuff. So I was like, okay, I can do that. I had some satirical underpinnings about this day and age and some of the weird things that we end up doing, like materialism or some, you know, variation of like racism and different things like that. So you start and feminism and, you know, equality. And so I, I explore some of those, uh, some of those different aspects in a satirical way inside of this game. So that's what I'm working on, um, right now. And that's another mobile game too, right? Yeah. This is a, this is a mobile game also. And, um, you know, good reviews so far. And the interesting thing, uh, this is actually something that I pulled back from what I did with my day job was that it's not completely finished. So I was like, oh, I'm going to take this, I'm doing air quotes. I'm going to take this agile approach to building this game. And so I got a little bit of it partially working and I just threw it out there for free. And I said, okay, you know, it's a free game. If you download it now, you know, you're, you're an early supporter. I get a, I get a feel for what kind of interest level there is for the game. And every three to four weeks, I'll do an update and I'll push a release. There's, there's people that have downloaded the very first version of the game and they've seen the, the story evolve and the gameplay evolve and they just love it. They're like, oh, this is so great. You know, I know every month or, you know, every, every few weeks, every month, there's going to be a new update and this update's going to add to the game mechanic or add to the storyline. There's going to be something different. And uh, they really, they really grasped onto that aspect to it. And for, for me, this was something different to do because mostly games are like, oh, it's done. And then we release and, you know, we might have a, a patch that comes out and maybe a DLC and that's it. But, um, I took the approach of, Hey, you know what? I'm going to, Every, every so often, just build a little bit of the game and push it out there. 
and get some feedback on it. And I've actually incorporated feedback, which is really cool. So I'll get some people say, oh, this, the jump mechanic's kind of confusing or, you know, this part's way too hard and I couldn't get through it. So I was like, okay, well, I can, I can rework some of those things. So about two months in, I was still not done, but I started charging for the game and people were buying it. They're, they're still enjoying it and they're still buying the game. And I guess I kind of kickstarted myself with this approach. But it was really interesting pulling that idea of incremental development into, into gaming. This is something I learned from just doing regular software development. So I've got a question. You're building text-based games for, for mobile, for really a generation that never even understood text-based anything, right? I mean, everything's right. been, been <laughs> graphical for, for a couple of generations now. So what makes a good game? So one of the interesting things with the, with the text-based stuff, and, and this, this is just like a side story, I think that's what made the game edgy and cool. So when it went viral, I heard, you know, a couple of my friends are like, yeah, we, these kids in my, in my classroom are playing this damn game. And the thing was, it didn't look like a game. So he really didn't catch them playing it. Right. It's just a text-based game. It's like an Excel sheet, right? It's like, oh, he's just working on Excel on his phone. So it was really funny seeing that, uh, there, there was an aspect to, you know, I guess capturing the young imagination that they were able to really connect with, um, with these text-based games. And, uh, so, that was the old becomes new again, I guess. So there's an aspect of that that uh, that I think is is true. And as far as uh, as far as game development, um, honestly, the and I'm I made this mistake in the past enough to know that you just kind of have to build things that you yourself will enjoy playing. I I think that you can succeed succeed with that model because you have such a a broad audience now. You know, in the old in the old days where you had to actually find a publisher and then release a hard you know a hard disc or a CD or something for your game, um, you couldn't build a game that was based off of the reenactment of some war that was fought in you know the the eighteen hundreds, right? Because you wouldn't find a a large enough audience that would appreciate that kind of game. But I think in this day and age, you can you can get away with doing these really uh, niche experiences that target. A very specific specific genre and still generate some revenue from it. So that part uh, I think is really important is that build a game that you yourself would enjoy playing because chances are there's going to be an audience that's even even if it's small there'll be an audience that'll be interested in playing it. And then um, I think another thing that I learned was concentrate on the game mechanic first as opposed to the storyline. So when I was young, you know, you always think about oh I want to share this this great epic story with someone, but um, concentrating on just some really core game mechanics will make or break your game. Again, this whole idea of constraints where on, on the mobile medium, I don't have a, I don't have a 12 button controller. So I'm constrained to maybe, you know, a couple of buttons on the screen, maybe some very intuitive swipe gestures, but that's what I have to work with. So creating game mechanics around that is again, you know, it's, it's one of those things you just have to practice at and kind of get a feel for. So game mechanic first, build a game that you would like to like, uh, like to play yourself. And then you get the, um, and you get the storyline at the end which completes the immersive aspect to it. And I think uh, with regards to immersion and narrative, um, it's important to be consistent with your storyline and narrative. I try not to use those terms interchangeably. Storyline is, you know, the main story arc of your game, but narrative is everything else that complements that storyline. If your game is set in some kind of gothic era, it would be against the narrative to have a, you know, a computer show up in a room. It's not consistent with that idea of, oh, wait, this is old time. Like, why is there a computer here? So I think having that kind of consistency is extremely important uh, with the games that you're that, that you're building. So what kind of things inspire you to build the games that you're building? A lot of my inspiration comes from games that I play. I guess 
you can't I, I wouldn't call it stealing right i mean that's such a weird word to say but they are like they're completely inspired by uh by games that i played um you know noble circles is inspired by a book and you know parts of parts of the game mechanics are inspired by uh you know the difficulty of flappy bird or, or swing copter um there's elements of a uh, crossy road in there this idea of you know like trying to traverse quote-unquote minefield of of different sprites that you have to avoid. There's like and the tap gestures, the single tap things that you see in a lot of mobile games that are there. So, you know, Noble Soccer is inspired by that. Uh, the Ensign, which was, which is a prequel to a dark room is wholly inspired. Its difficulty is wholly inspired by Dark Souls. So the idea of, you know, a very punishing difficulty level that rewards you for making good moves, but kills you <laughs> for lack of a better term when, uh, term when you just, when you make a mistake. A lot of the inspiration comes from playing other games and uh, looking at how they, yeah, approach this medium. And it's like, oh wow, they did a great job with that. Let me see if I can, you know, make a variation of that or explore this game mechanic that they've discovered or they've they've shown and see what I can do with it. Just play a lot of games and then, <laughs> and uh, you know, create some der good derivative works based on those things. So, are you into any uh, offline games like uh, tabletop games or D and D or anything like that? I've done quite a few board games, so like Dominion is a, a game that I play a lot. Settlers of Catan, I've played here and there. Another game game that's really good is called, a, I think it's called Star Realms or Space Realms. I think it's called Star Realms. And it's like a deck builder game similar to Dominion or like Magic the Gathering. I played Magic back in the day. But the cool thing about Star Realms is that you actually get the full, it, the starter packs the entire deck. And both people use that same starter pack. So there's no... Yeah, there's no collectible aspect of it. Correct, and they'll do expansion packs, but they all everyone plays from the same pool, so everyone access has access to the same ships, the same abilities, things like that. Dominion's the same way; they have a collectible aspect, right? They have some expansions that are coming out, but everyone has an equal opportunity to you know use those same cards, which is cool. But yeah, like uh, even even uh, tabletop games, you know, there's there's actually a website that that shows like different kinds of tabletop and board games that are out there. Some of them are out of print. Some of them were popular and only in concept, but never made it into, you know, never made it into stores and there might be out of copyright. Those are opportunities for you to kind of look and say, well, here's a game mechanic or here's an interesting approach to games. Can I do something with this? Can I, you know, get inspired by this or can I get the essence of what this game was trying to do and try to bring it into a digital medium? So it, there's a lot of really nice, really cool opportunities to to build sm these small games and then find people that will actually play them. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you had said before where, hey, I took this inspiration from this game or that inspiration from that game, where it, it's, I think it's even more prevalent in the tabletop industry where they'll take the, a complete game experience, slap a different theme on it and say, oh, look, it's a different game. <laughs> it's you know? a different and, game. Go for it. <laughs> oh, look, it's Monopoly, but we call it Sellers of Catan. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know things, things like that. And um, I find it fascinating where we would all get excited. Oh, ooh, look, there's a legendary predator. But yet we have Legendary Marvel that came out last year that's essentially the same thing, but have just have different things kind of tied into it. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big board gamer myself. We, we were playing. Oh, what were we playing? Uh, it was a game called Mammoth. I got it free. Don't ask me how. I just got it free. And so I started, <laughs> I played it with the, with the kids and it, it was it, it was kind of mean. Right. So what you had to do, you, you dropped all these things on the table and the first person picks. And so the second person can either pick from the pool what's left or take what you know the first person put, and you go around, you know, deciding where I'm going to take someone else's, or I'm am I going to pick from what's left in the pool, and that's kind of how it went around. Then there was a Kickstarter a few months back 
that essentially had the exact same thing. I mean, it was the exact same thing, different theme, and everybody's going gaga over, and it was like a thousand percent over Kickstarter and all this stuff. And I'm like, I, I played that game last week. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, and and you know, it, it really is a testament to execution. There's so many good ideas with bad execution, and so if you can make you know a good idea with good execution, I think that will really set you apart. You know, just to just to emphasize this idea of like small money. You make a game, it takes you, let's say, a month to build it. You end up making $5 a day on it, let's say. I think that's, probably say that's still a little bit on the, you know, on the medium to high end, $5, $5 a day on it. But you spend a month on a game, you make 5 bucks a day on it. That's not a lot of money, but now you have 10 games and now you're making $50 a day. In a, in a year's time, you have 10 games and now you're making $50 a day. That's a car payment. That's something that you can kind of work with and maybe one of those games hits right it gets funded a thousand percent or you know it gets featured and then suddenly and uh, and then each one of your games has like interstitials to your other games it's viable you just have to think about making small money as opposed to trying to do like blockbuster hit games right right so kind of writing on the success of these games that you've built i see you have to publish a book right called surviving the app store surviving the app store as an indie game developer so it's a lean pub publication it's um it's free uh, if you end up paying for it, you know, 10% goes to a charity that actually helps kids learn how to code. And it's this, you know, idea of like being part of a community and, and, um, you know, it's free marketing for my game. You know, I, there, there is like a business aspect to it, but basically, yeah, it details pretty much everything that I went through. Um, I had a postmortem on my uh, website. It was ridiculously long one year developer log of everything that I went through with the dark room. So I turned that into book format and then added, postmortems on those postmortems so it's like oh on this day i was feeling this here's why or this spike occurred i now know why that spike occurred this is why i did it I talk about marketing i talk about monetization strategies um you know how you do a good app page how to get started with game development if you don't know how to do game development um how to get started with coding what you should expect i share revenue numbers um, with how much a darkroom has made uh, what its daily rank is, how do other games influence a dark room, how does Apple feature us. So I go into a lot of nitty-gritty details with regards to how to make sustainable income in the App Store. That's a that's a lot of stuff for a free book. <laughs> it, it's a lot of material, but at the end of the day, I'm, I hope that people buy it, and I hope that they buy the game, because I do talk about specific instances of the game. you got to kind of buy the game to to understand some of the, you know, some of the different aspects. So it's kind of like, you know, supplement, complimentary material. Please buy the game to, <laughs> to understand the book. But yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be working out uh, as far as there, there are people out there that will pay for it. And I, and I know, I definitely know that those people that have bought the book will, will buy my games just simply because they're like, wow, there was a lot of good material in there. That's the least I can do is, you know, support them from that standpoint. And I also love the fact that you said 10% of the proceeds go to charity, right? So, so what, tell us about the charity that the money goes to. It's basically a coding school in the, in the United Kingdom. So they help kids just kind of get introduced to coding and development. And the cool thing about LeanPub is that they just give you an option. They say, hey, here's a bunch of charities that are available. Just set your percentage and then we will handle the rest. So from my perspective, I was like, oh, this is great. Like I can, I can just you know, give 10% to charity and uh, just put my book out there. And this this charity felt the most aligned with specifically what I was trying to do. I think it's time. Which is it time or no? Uh, Yeah, let's, it's time. I mean, I think it's time. Are you ready for this? Yes. Well, well, well wait, we're ready for what? <laughs> I'm going to ask you a really hard question. Oh my gosh, question. it's so crazy. Ah! It's going to be a tough question, man. I hope you're ready for this, B. All right, let's do it.
So, so we've spoken a lot about a lot of things that you're doing. We've spoken about building games. We've spoken about the dark room. We've spoken about your book and the charities and stuff like that that you're supporting. What do you do when you're away from the keyboard? What do I do when I'm away from the keyboard? Um, I actually do a lot of uh, artistry and drawing. I work in charcoal, so I'll do a lot of charcoal drawing. I have a music background, so um, I was a percussionist through high school. I always pick up a pair of drumsticks and you know do some percussion stuff. Of course, hang out with the, with the wife. Uh, you know, relax, watch, watch a tea with her. My guilty pleasure is the bachelor and bachelorette. I say that she forces me to watch those things, but <laughs> I kind of enjoy it now. So sadly, wow. you've been brainwashed. <laughs> wow. I've been brainwashed. Don't let it's them happened. win, man. Don't let them do that to you. Wow. <laughs> hey, it's terrible. It It is, it is just <laughs> trash TV, but it's like, I get to turn my brain off after, after thinking for so long during the day. Um, being able to just, you know, disconnect and just turn my brain off and to, and to watch TV is good. And of course I play video games, but I, I think the, the big thing is, and the thing that I always regret not doing enough of is, uh, drawing. So that's, that's one of my big loves and just as the aspect of creativity there. So I have a whole like array of drawing books. Um, basically they're like art of, Last of Us or Art of Magic the Gathering and all these different books that showed different concept arts from these these types of games. And just being able to open one of those books and kind of sketch some of those ideas out is uh, lots of fun. If you're interested in Amir's book, Surviving the App Store, How to Make It as an Indie Game Developer, do we have a deal for you. Amir's been kind enough to give you, our wonderful listeners, a free copy of of the book. If you go to our website, awayfromthekeyboard.com, and then you go to episode 41, in the links, you'll have a free copy of his book. So we'd like to thank Amir for making that available to you. Now take it away, Cecil. We'd like to thank Amir for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to a way the keyboard. Next on the way from the keyboard, we'll have Pepperidge co-founder, Mr. Aaron Stannard. Were those, um, you remember those quick start series books that they would hand out on like CSS and yep. HTML, JavaScript? Oh man, every time I got one of those, I would just tear through it. Nice. So I really started at a pretty young age, uh, paid for my car by designing ASP classic websites for people in middle school and high school too. That's all. Yep, we'll, we'll see you back for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> we want to thank you for listening to Away from the Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego!
that's all. Bye. Yep. We'll we'll see you back for the next one. <laughs> You know what my problem is with cartoons these days? What you got? The theme music sucks. <laughs> Think about all the old shows. Look at the Peanuts. The other day we were watching um, DuckTales. And it's like just the music alone is so entertaining. And today you watch cartoons and I'm just like, what the hell is this? DuckTales. I love that. Anyway, that's just me. All right, but what about My Little Pony? I didn't even remember the theme song My Little Pony. Now I got to look it up. <laughs> now I'm talking about the new My Little Pony. There's a new My Little Pony? I have not seen it. Don't show it to your son. He'd be all over I it. I have not seen it, to be honest. Friendship is magic. I, I honestly didn't even know. But you know what I heard they're remaking is Voltron. Yes. I, I, heard, I heard there's a trailer out, but I haven't seen the trailer yet. Tune in next week where we talk about Voltron. On Away From The Keyboard. Am I here? Are you there? I don't know. Are you? I don't know. That was weird. All right, Richie. Well, hey. welcome to welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so, you, I'm gonna it's go like, start recording. Oh, perfect. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So yeah, I, I I picked up and it just dropped you, and it said, "Nope, unavailable." I'm like, "What the heck?" Yeah, I got Skype voicemail, man. I got. You know, the person you're trying to call is not available at this time. Please leave a message. <laughs> I, and I was just telling Amir, I didn't even know Skype had yeah, voicemail. Skype, like, I, did, I didn't know that was, was a thing. Now you know. No well, apparently you have it on your account. I, 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 I do, do have it because... Some kind of uh, one, two, one, two, three clap thing? Was that? Oh, no, no. Yes. I, I don't need to do any of that stuff. So is that what they do on Dine Rocks? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Dine Rocks and uh, Hansel Minutes, they... Uh, once the recording is starting on both sides, they'll do the clap to synchronize the recordings. Yeah, we 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 don't need. Do I don't that. think we've ever done that. No, 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 no <laughs> that, never done that. That's interesting. That's an interesting tidbit to know. But no, we've never we never had to do that. Yeah, I I, I heard I heard that Don Rox does that. Um, we actually are recording the call, so I've got both sides. And so mm-hmm. what I'll do is I'll um, I'll just I could just match everyone's wave form um according to that well i'll send you i'll send you i'm recording locally uh, with um quicktime and i'll send that over through drop dropbox if you want to get a yeah yes quality, if please. the quality is better <laughs> yeah, yeah please do that would be great it, it is not better yeah yeah and that's why i was like oh we can clap i always like the clap part <laughs> <laughs> well you know we can do it anyway no we got we got to do a mommy style it'd be like no that's too much clapping man
Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> now we, have, now we have to synchronize the clap to synchronize the recording. Yeah. We got to synchronize the beat. Did we drop the beat? <laughs> we have how we're, it done. we're done. <laughs> this call's over. <laughs> <laughs> the key to success of the clap. See, this is what happens All when right, you try well, and get three guys trying to talk about synchronization. Oh, don't get me sorry, synchronization. I, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I, get, I get nightmares of clusters and stuff. So do we need a clap now? Or no? Uh, I think we decided <laughs> <not> to clap. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think, the I think key that was it, to yeah. success of the clap. The keys to success. Once we started synchronizing claps to synchronize claps, that was, that was over. <laughs> we need a salsa beat for the clap. That's what we need. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's funny. <laughs> All right, so let's 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 uh, let's get the show started. Go on, start it. Let's go. Well, shut up, dude. Let me get some bloody white space, man. 